I'm Fathery. This is Dave. This is Brian. And this is Text Trek. Engage. Aboard the Starship Texas for the 74th installment of the Tex Trek podcast, the home of Star Trek fandom from deep in the heart of Texas. And tonight we are talking about Star Trek VI The Undiscovered Country, the final movie of the original series crew. Well, the final all all original series crew movie. We we should let him get the 7447 thing out of his system at the front end. I didn't even think about that. But yes, this is the 74th episode, so it is the inverse of 47. My favorite number in the magic number of Star Trek. Thank you, Brian, for uh, catching that, because I would have uh, not been able to forgive myself if I didn't point that out. (laughs) You know who else has favorite numbers? People, people who like have crystals and stuff. <laughs> uh, I don't think it has like any like actual uh, properties other than I just enjoy seeing that number because of its connection to Star Trek. It's like they're waving hi to you every time they do it. They're like doing this to you. <laughs> but uh, enough about forty-seven or seventy-four. We're going to talk about number six. Yep. It was in the the sixth film. Uh, it came out uh, in nineteen ninety-one, so it's been twenty-eight years. And uh, I this is a this is a fan favorite. Uh, yeah, like uh, among uh, usually in the top two or three, I would say uh, for for a lot of people. Yeah, like especially if you're looking at the the TOS movies, uh, like two, four, and six are the ones that come up the most. Uh, one has made a a resurgence, and there's there's some uh, some diehard three lovers like myself, but. Mm-hmm. I'm waiting for insurrection to get its moment. Man, that's uh, stranger things have happened. But, <laughs> yeah, um, I hear people talking how, about how great Episode One of Star Wars is. So anything can happen well, in this day and age. Uh, yeah, that's true. Um, but uh, yeah, with, with this movie, it was uh, made with the intent of being the the finale for the uh, original series uh, cast, um, and this was the. First Star Trek movie since the motion picture that Harv Bennett, producer Harv Bennett, was not involved in. Um, he actually had his own idea for how to follow up Star Trek V. Uh, a, a big concern was uh, the budget after the disappointing results of Star Trek V. Uh, Paramount didn't want to spend too much money. Harv Bennett came up with this idea to save money by not bringing back the principal actors and instead doing a prequel it would have showed a young Kirk meeting a young Spock. Similar territory to what Star Trek 09 would eventually cover. Um, we'll get to that movie at some point. But, um, yeah, and it, uh, the, the actors were actually mad when they heard about this. And so they were trying to, like, uh, stir the pot and get, like, the fans mad. Because, you know, the actors, they're like, no, I want you to bring me back for a movie. 
but you got to pay me enough to come back. So you have like these actors like going to conventions saying like like Paramount wants to uh, recast us all as as teenagers at the Academy and like not use any of us and isn't that terrible? They're they're trying to like rile up the fan base. Probably try to get them uh, to go on like Twitter and well, other well, social well, media. Well, if I thought the alternative was my final film was going to be Star Trek Five, I'd be pretty motivated. <laughs> <to know>. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but but uh, eventually Paramount uh, decided to not go that route. Uh, but uh, Harv Bennett did part ways from the Star Trek franchise. Uh, he left us with uh, three really great movies, though, and then one uh, not so great movie. But he, who was the producer on this? Um, Nimoy. Well, uh, Nimoy kind of took over the Harv Bennett role, mm-hmm. and uh, Nimoy and uh, he came up with a story. Basically, um, you know, the Cold War is ending in real life. What if we had the Cold War end in Star Trek? And do a Berlin Wall coming down in space. Right, with a very so, dramatic kind of like um, rescue mission uh, sort of thing that, that did not quite, yeah. that's their exaggerated version of, of the reality. Yeah, with, with a Sherlock Holmes style mystery thrown in there, some, uh, some quotes of, from classic literature, all the Nicholas Meyer trappings. Well, I think and, Nicholas Meyer's probably or, brought those, not yeah, Nimoy. But, but, <laughs> yeah, I was gonna, I was gonna say that, like, Nick, Nicholas Meyer, you know, comes in with, with Nimoy, and they're, they're, they, the way I imagine this conversation going is, you know, Nicholas Meyer, Leonard Nimoy go to Paramount, and they're like, look, we made the good Star Trek movies, so let us, let us do this one, we, we can, we can end the series for you. And Paramount uh, didn't give them, like, too huge of a budget. Basically the th- same budget as Star Trek V, <laughs> which doesn't account for inflation. Yeah. And they had to fight hard to get that. Yes. But uh, uh, Trek Two was kind of a lower budget movie overall, yeah, too. And, right. and none, of, none of them were really high except for the motion picture. Like, yeah. like, Paramount did not want to have another motion picture on their hands where they, they overspend on Star Trek. Uh, but uh, they did have certain stipulations with this budget. They they really wanted the uh, the special effects to look good. They wanted the the ships and the space battles to look good, and uh, it does show in the movie. I think I think some of the uh, ship shots in this movie hold up uh, perfectly well to today. Mm-hmm. And Which it, did mean that they didn't have enough a, a, a lot of money for everything else because yes. they were trying to make sure they they paid ILM. But it, <laughs> so a little more budgeting on like what Rurapente and things yeah. like that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but the the battle at the end of this movie that we'll, we'll get to it, it isn't like one of the the best uh, special effect sequences in in the Star Trek movies, I think. Yeah, Nicholas Myers knows how to stretch a dollar, <laughs> so and that was why he was brought in because they weren't going to get very many dollars. So Nimoy said, "Well, Nicholas Myers is our man." Then, and I, I said uh, a few weeks ago when we talked about Star Trek II: The Wrath of Khan, you know, any Star Trek movie that had Nimoy. Nicholas Meyer, Harve Bennett, any movie that had two of those three working on it behind the scenes was a damn good Star Trek movie. Yes. Um, that does exclude the motion picture in Star Trek V, but that's, that's how I, that's how they worked out for me, at least. So. I think I'm the person who least likes Star Trek VI in the world. Uh, out, of, out of people who I know, but yeah, <laughs> Dave, Dave has some issues on this, so we're not just going to be gushing on this movie the entire yeah. time. Uh, Dave's going to be calling out some of the... Things that rubs him the wrong way. Dumb shit. This was the the first Star Trek movie I got to see as a as a big long time fan. By that mm-hmm. point, I was an expert. I'd been watching every episode of TNG. I had been following. I was subscribed to the newsletter. I was cosplaying. I, I and this was 
This was a gloriously fun movie, though I kind of spoiled myself by watching too many 25th anniversary documentaries before going in to see it, which <laughs> oh, had right. too many behind-the-scenes you, details. You, you connected the dots that in the pre-internet, or yeah. did, was the internet around then? Not, 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 not for most people. Not, not for, most, for people. most people. In the pre-internet days, they didn't expect people to connect those dots, but you saw enough to do it. Yeah, and you so... You were pretty dedicated. I, I have to admit, I somewhat spoiled myself for this film, but I do really love this film, and I loved it when I first saw it, and I... I loved it ever since. Yeah, I guess my my initial experience was I I saw it on VHS as a kid in 1994, I believe. Um, yeah, I, so you know, I've told the story before. But basically, I, I rented Star Trek two, three, and four. Watched those in one weekend. Next weekend, I rented Star Trek five and six and watched those. So the, these movies that I love that had like a big impact on my childhood, like I basically experienced them within the course of a week. But wow, <laughs> that's interesting. I uh, like a mini series for you. <laughs> I saw that. I, I know I saw it when it came out, but I don't have particularly strong memories of seeing it, other than I kind of vaguely remember being disappointed. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I think part of it was also like uh, that was uh, right hit me right in the college days when I was like I think I had like somewhat burned out on Trek based really sort of on never quite plugging fully into Next Generation. Uh, and Trek Five, I'm sure, had dealt a bit of a blow to uh, <laughs> what I expected from Trek. Um, and then, um, and then you know, I was uh, probably a little bit of a snarky college student, uh, a little more critical of some of that stuff than I might have been before. So, um, yeah, for whatever, well, for, for, for reasons that we'll talk about, um, I it, it, it felt disappointing to me. I think, it also, Trek 2 loomed so large in my childhood that I think the fact that, um, to some degree, if I were to just sum up what why it doesn't quite connect... It's. Um, I feel like the dialogue doesn't have the the gravity of Trek Two. That there's so much kind of humor and lines that don't quite have that perfection that Trek Two has. That it, like I love the premise of this movie, and I feel like the the execution never quite or rarely quite lives up to it for me. So like, it's probably a better movie than I give it credit for. But it was more disappointing to me on a personal level. After Star Trek V, I wasn't disappointed. <laughs> yeah, which was kind of how I felt watching this, because I watched Star yeah. Trek V as a kid, and I was like, well, that was really weird. So I ejected that tape, put it in Star Trek VI, and I was like, oh, this one is way better. <laughs> I think at the time I was probably a little bit ready to let Trek go, actually. Uh, my my fandom wasn't so deep that I was like, I will ride this forever. Yeah, because... Well, it was kind of a movie about letting go, though. It was supposed to be the, the you know big ending movie, so... Yeah, but that didn't mean I'd have to like it. <laughs> uh, I, I, I will grant you there's a lot of on-the-nose beats in this film. That You, you mentioned that on-the-nose when we watched it together, yeah. I think. And, and I agree with you. And that is the single biggest complaint I have about this movie is when it fumbles, it's, it's because it's too on-the-nose about little beats, the, about how it executes the beat. So. By the way, we want to hit up the... Uh... Transwarp yeah. summary? Yeah, we're just going to very quickly run through the story of this movie, just to refresh everyone out there. Uh, so we will initiate the Transwarp summary. The long-time Cold War enemies of the Federation, the Klingon Empire, experience an explosion on their home world's moon, Praxis, caused by the overmining of dilithium and lack of safety oversight. This is essentially... Their Chernobyl. This sets off a chain of events and a story designed to resemble the Berlin Wall coming down, but in space. Kirk, who hates Klingons after they murdered his son three movies earlier, is charged with taking the Enterprise to rendezvous 
with Klingon Chancellor Gorkhan and escorting him back into the Federation for peace talks, as the Klingons can no longer afford to maintain hostilities. The Enterprise takes off with newcomer Lieutenant Valeris on board, a young Vulcan woman taking over the helm for Sulu, who is finally commanding his own ship, the Excelsior. Tensions are high during the initial meeting when the Enterprise reaches Gorkhan's ship. There are prejudices on both sides. We do get to meet Gorkhan as well as his chief of staff, General Chang. But the ship really hits the fan when the Enterprise seemingly fires on the Klingon ship. Then two Starfleet personnel in spacesuits beam over to Gorkhan's ship and assassinate him with phasers. Kirk and Dr. McCoy beam over to render aid, but are accused of being a part of the attack. They are put on trial, convicted of their crimes, and sentenced to hard labor on the frozen penal asteroid Rurapente. But we know they are innocent, and so does the rest of the Enterprise crew. Inspector Spock is on the case. Spock assumes command of the ship and carries out an investigation. He concludes that the torpedoes were fired from a Klingon bird of prey that must have been parked under the Enterprise and somehow has the ability to fire when cloaked, and the actual assassins must still be on board. Spock also manages to retrieve Kirk and Bones from Rurapente, and Scotty discovers the identity of the real assassins. But it's too late. Someone has now killed them to cover their tracks. A trap is set to catch their killer, and it turns out it is Lieutenant Valeris. From Valeris, we learn there is a larger conspiracy to sabotage diplomatic relations between the Klingons and the Federation. A conspiracy which includes both Starfleet Admiral Cartwright, as well as the Klingon General Chang. Kirk wasn't the only one who mistrusted the Klingons. Enemies on both sides formed an alliance to ensure that they can remain enemies, and Kirk really comes to understand how wrong he was to maintain such resentment. A new peace conference is being held at the neutral planet Kittimer, but Kirk knows there will be another assassination attempt as long as there is still a chance for peace. The Enterprise races to Kittimer and gets in a spectacular space battle with Chang, who is in command of the one-of-a-kind and extra-dangerous Bird of Prey. With the help of Sulu and the Excelsior, the Enterprise defeats Chang and destroys his ship. Our heroes beam down to Kittimer just in time to stop the Federation president from being shot by a sniping assassin, and they arrest the conspirators. Now that the galacto-political clusterfuck has been straightened out, the Enterprise is recalled to space dock to be decommissioned. It is time to retire the ship and her crew. Kirk gives one last log entry, confirming that this is his final cruise on the Starship Enterprise. But the Enterprise legacy will be passed on to a new captain and a new crew, who will boldly go where no man, where no one, has gone before. And with that, it is an end of an era. They should have Picard at the very end saying, uh, like, like catching a, a thrown football from Kirk. <laughs> I think that's what the, the one-man thing was. That was the verbal football. <laughs> yes. So. Well, um, we will get a passing of the baton, or football, in uh, the next movie. We'll talk about next week. Uh, but in the meantime, 
we're just going to go over Star Trek VI, uh, kind of like break it down uh, scene by scene in, in more detail and share our thoughts on it. Uh, the, the movie uh, opens with that pretty cool special effect of the, the actual explosion of Praxis. And we get to see Sulu on the Excelsior. Yep. And he seems like such a cool captain. I really wanted that Excelsior show mm-hmm. starring George Takei that never came to be. I would have preferred that to Enterprise, I think. Um, uh, you know, I, I think I, I like that Enterprise got to mine a, a, a different era. Um, but uh, missing out on Takei in command is is a really big missed opportunity. It is it is a shame because he's super fun as a captain. He's got that commanding quality to him, uh, but with some wit to it. Mm. Um, he's he's just fun to watch, and it's cool to see the original crew. Growing into, you know, kind of like advancing, leveling up their characters so in such a cool way. Yeah, and we see Rand on, on the Excelsior. So yes. um, it, it does kind of remind me of the scene in Charlie X, I believe, mm-hmm. when she's, uh, when, when Sulu is like playing with the plants in the the little garden room they yeah, have. Yeah, yeah. And, Mechanical area. Yeah, yeah and, and she brings them like a, a tray with his lunch on it, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um because I guess that's what Yeomans did on the Enterprise. Uh, but you could tell that they were kind of like friends at work. Like, they're kind of like chit-chatting to one another. That was Charlie X, wasn't it? I think so. So I, I like the idea, like, oh yeah, like, uh, they they were buddies. And, like, when he had, like, an opening on his ship, he, he, like, offered the job to her or yeah. something like yeah. that. And, Brian, you, you were the one who pointed out the other day that, of course, there is... You can see a little bit more of Sulu in Command... Uh, in the Voyager episode. Yeah, what was the flashback. Yeah. Flashback. But I actually, season three. I don't like... I don't like Captain Sulu as much in that episode as I do in this movie. Well, I... I how I far mean, apart were those filmed, that Voyager episode in this movie? Oh, uh, the Voyager episode five? came out in the fall of 96. In this, so this would have, been, it would have been released five years after yeah, this. Well, because one was the 25th anniversary special. The other was the 30th anniversary yeah. special. There we go. So, uh, the, but it did have both Takei and uh, the, the actress playing Rand. Um, shit, one of us has to... Uh, Grace Lee Whitney. Gra- yes, Gra- yeah, Grace like, Lee Whitney. We, we we could not not say that. Yeah, that <laughs> Who uh, sadly is is no longer with us. Yeah. But um, yeah. But uh, Sulu uh, telling the helmsman to like turn the ship into the into the wave mm-hmm. is so cool because he he is the the helmsman, so he he knew the, like the best way to pilot the ship through something like that. Yeah, yeah. It's cool to see oh. his specialty still coming through, even though he's the guy giving the orders. And he also has like a really cool like commanding moment uh, later in the movie. <laughs> Um, but George Takei was so happy to have command of a ship. And Shatner actually tells the story. This and is, to be doing most of his filming on a day where Shatner wouldn't yes. be there. <laughs> but th- this is, this is uh, Shatner's version of the story, so keep that in mind. But he tells the story to where he, he said to, to George, maybe at like the table reading or at some point before they started shooting, he said, um, oh, well, you're going to be on another ship. You're going to be captain of your own ship, and, and you're going to miss out on all the action. And, and George Takei was, like, responded, like, real snippily, like, yes, I'm going to be captain of my own ship, and there's nothing you can do about it. <laughs> but, uh, that's the Shatner version. That might yeah. relate back to the fact that, that Takei blames Shatner for messing up the scene in Star, Star Trek, Trek II, II where they were talking about him becoming yes. a captain. And, and Takei has accused Shatner of, like, getting in the way of letting other characters... Shine and and keeping keeping Sulu from being a captain of his own ship. Yeah. So and there, I don't know, there might be some truth to that, but yeah, lots, lots of drama with uh, with that group of actors. <laughs> and the uh, he said she said of uh, Star Trek drama. I think 
there's a lot more voices against Shatner than usually than for him. So yeah. I tend to kind of err on the other side. But there's a part of me that always wants reality to be like Galaxy Quest, where Shatner is a better person than maybe he was. <laughs> um, so, uh, like, I want to believe, but yeah, I, I don't know. I don't, I don't get to. I don't follow it too closely. I mean, yeah. Shatner's been an asshole to me in person, but um, you probably I, brought it on yourself. <laughs> Come on. Uh, I'll save that story for another time. Um, but yeah, we all get shat on. <laughs> uh, but when we have it to, is an honor to get shat on by the chat. <laughs> uh, if, if you say so, we get that. They get that scene in San Francisco at Starfleet HQ, um, and that's where they they establish that uh, Spock is kind of uh, heading up this this diplomatic mission mm-hmm. to, with the help of Daddy. Yes, uh, on on uh, behalf of his father. Uh, and so, uh, again, it kind of plays into Star Trek Four of how like they pat- patched up their relationship. And this is also the beginning of where we see Spock transition from uh, Starfleet uh, officer to ambassador. And it's also where we learn that all of Starfleet Command is apparently human. So, <laughs> yeah, the the CNC, uh, Cartwright, and, and everybody else I saw at that table except for Spock. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, how, how much do you think is that? Is that the sort of like? humanocentrism of, like, the writers, and how much do you think of that as budgetary because it would just mean more costumes? Uh, I think it's a Nicholas Myers thing because there were aliens all over the place in Star Trek One, and there are... I don't know if there were any aliens on the crew in Star Trek Three, but there were certainly aliens on Earth in Star Trek Three, and right. and there were certainly aliens all over the place in Star Trek Four. And then when we get to six, suddenly there's no aliens in Starfleet, right? In except Trek, for Dax. I think you do see aliens in Starfleet and Star Trek Three in that scene where Maru is in the torpedo room. Oh, okay. Right. Moro or yeah. whatever his name is. Yeah. But, All right. Uh, yeah, but we also get um, the the line from Spock that there's been almost seventy years of hostilities. With the Klingons, mm-hmm. so now that we have like Star Trek Discovery out there, we can kind of like talk about how like that fits in the canon with this, and the way the way I interpret it is like when he's talking about like seventy years of hostility. I think that's talking about how maybe in Discovery they mention that there's been like these these terror raids from the Klingons that yeah. uh, Michael Burnham blames them for for uh, killing her parents at the Doctori Alpha Colony. Mm-hmm. Uh, we do learn eventually that there's more to that story but yeah. i'm thinking so 70 years ago that must have been like when these terror raids started yeah makes sense um, not 70 years of sustained war but 70 years of high tension yeah. and, and lots of altercations yeah, yeah I, think, I think the exact words ver- verbatim are almost 70 years of hostilities yeah and, and there was a war in there yeah the 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 events of this movie make a bit more sense and are a little easier to sympathize with some of the Section 31 antics after you've seen Season 1 of Discovery and realized how close the Klingons came to, you know, wiping out the Federation. Yeah, and you also kind of get more sympathy for some of the prejudices that these characters are harboring if if you're thinking about like, oh yeah, like, uh, what... Just Scotty probably Kirk. fought in that war, you know. Uh, yeah, like like Kirk would have been a cadet during the war, but uh, yeah, Scotty, uh, McCoy were probably both in Starfleet. Yeah. Um, uh, Spock, we saw that he was uh, on on the Enterprise, although he sat out the war, but yes. he's still affected by it very um, strongly <laughs> with his sister. And, and we also know Sarek's involvement in that war and how he uh, was willing to like genocide the Klingon planet. For this, uh, for him, this movie was old hat. 
He'd well, be like, oh, I decided on that decades ago. Well, yeah. well no, I think I think he's trying to make up for it now in Star Trek VI. Yeah. Right. That's, that's why Certainly he's... not intended in, Nicola, er, in the script from... Uh, uh, Nicholas Meyer, but it works. Yes, yes. So I love, I love retroactively. We, I love when we can connect the dots like that, and everything yeah. works out. It's pretty cool. Um, but this this also has the moment that does bother me uh, when, and it bothered Shatner. He didn't want to do it when uh, Kirk says to Spock, "Let them die." And the the way that Shatner wanted to shoot it was he wanted to say, "Let me die," and then gesture like with with his hands, like kind of being shocked of, "Oh, oh my God, what did I just say?" Like I. I don't mean it. You say let and, me die? Or let them die. Oh, yeah, okay. Um, sorry. But but he would be aghast that he had just said yes. those words. A little and, bit like in, uh, was it uh, uh, Last Jedi, uh, when Luke almost kills Kylo Ren and is like, oh shit. Yeah, which I, I actually think that works. I, I think that's fine. Yeah. But uh, anyways, like uh, I, I think that works better than this. This kind of bothers me that our hero Kirk would, would say let them die. But I, I can kind of justify it in that I think Kirk probably did have a reaction like that. The camera cuts away from him very quickly. And then when it cuts back to him, he does like look like a little like unnerved about uh, maybe he regrets what he I'm just said. imagining in your head, well, Spock gave him the glare. Yeah. He says it, and then Spock's like, you have disappointed me, and that hurts Kirk, and Kirk has to reevaluate Cause, cause Well, he, you could argue that he was acting on, on pure, rawest emotion at that moment when he said it. But Father, I'm imagining in your head canon that right after Kirk says it, he does the Home Alone face, and he's like, <laughs> like "Well, not quite." But they, they just... I, I had no trouble with Kirk saying it. By the way, as, given the events of Star Trek Three, I they, was like, "That felt natural to me." They did shoot it the way that, that Shatner wanted, but then they didn't use all of that shot. Um, so Nicholas Meyer kind of tricked him on that one. <laughs> well, if you know, I, it's the kind of thing. The funny thing is, I think a lot of people who had like sort of uh, like generals and and, and uh, who had lived through the Cold War, if if the same thing were occurring with Russia, might have expressed that sentiment. Like it feels larger than life, but like the kind of thing I could imagine somebody saying. Mm-hmm. Uh, it does it does hurt a little bit because Kirk has always been compassionate too. He was never. Like a brutal cold warrior, well, he just lived through difficult times. He was also the guy who, in Balance of Terror, jumps on a, a crew member's ass for being so um, uh, ready to go murder some Romulans. Yep. But he hadn't had, he hadn't had personal problems with the yes. Romulans. The Romulans had been a big wall of nothing for his whole life. So, so that brings up another point in this movie: is that uh, our heroes are flawed in this movie. Yep, and uh, more to the point, it does it does it, the the ugliness that is sometimes present here for me is forgivable because at the end of the movie they acknowledge how wrong they were, and, and Kirk actually brings it up multiple times how wrong he was. Here's a quick question: uh, Is there any Trek movie prior to this where there wasn't some element of um, uh, something wrong with the with the crew member, an arc that they had to travel? You know, Kirk kind of descending into to depression because he'd let himself lose command because he was feeling age and didn't know how to deal with it. Like they, they, they do have some issues in all of them. This is maybe the biggest, what you would think of as character flaw because it feels like it's rooted in racism and, and that's pretty bad. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if Kirk had much of an arc in Star Trek four. I mean, is the Kirk at the end of four really different than the Kirk? That's at the true. That's really, of four? I guess, more the arc of uh, like Spock, yeah, uh, than anything else. But and Kirk has an arc in Star Trek too, where yes. you know, like Khan gets the the jump on him, 
in like that first battle. Yeah. But then like after like like Kurt kind of like gets his his confidence back and gets his head in the game and and arguably that also occurred in uh, Star Trek the Motion Picture yeah. too, yeah. where he was making some overtly bad decisions and and kind of you know bullying bull, his bull in a china shop uh, uh, to assuming command. Yeah. Um, so yeah, but this one, this one feels more personal. Nobody like those, you can kind of forgive those as like personal foibles or depressions and things like that. Uh, just dealing with a situation you don't know how to deal with for Spock or Kirk. Uh, finding out you're racist that sucks. Yeah, yeah. The 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 uh, or speciesist. I guess racist still xenophobic. Works. Well, racism. Well, race it's a, it's a racial for that. Yeah, yeah. Ra- r- races are supposed to be able, you know, able to interbreed, and humans and Klingons can interbreed. So technically, they are the same species by the most rigorous description of that term. Drink. But um, if they can interbreed and produce fertile offspring, there are, there so. is some. This is where some of the heavy-handed dialogue comes about, like from other crewmen who are like. Talking about how Klingons all look alike to them or smell weird to them. Uh, like, really just straight up lifted from the pop culture that- of... Of how white Americans, and, and not not just white Americans, but how people throughout the world react to people of other races. I did find it, in hindsight, a little disheartening that it's the these young people who are, young Starfleet yeah. who are racist. The old Starfleet who fought in the war with Dis- in Discovery makes a lot more sense to me. But the, the young people doing it was a little like, eh, that's a little harder to rationalize. Even they got with- pulled in by uh, alt-right memes on uh, Reddit. <laughs> Yeah. I, I don't, I'd like to think that that's not a problem in the 23rd century. God, I century. hope so. <laughs> so. Well, Star Trek has always had like a few bad apples in Starfleet. Yeah. So it's, uh, this was that, that was probably like, uh, like Mr. Adventure from Trek 3. Yeah. That guy's probably racist. Uh, I think that guy's fine. He's just, uh, <laughs> he just has like, Actually, a very I do kind of want to, that... it would have been easy. I kind of want to know what happened to him. <laughs> It he's still been. he's still in that fucking closet. <laughs> <laughs> he's dead. He's just, there's just a skeleton in there. They <laughs> never thought to check. Oh, uh, every now and then, her goes and walks up to there. And, How we doing, Mister Adventures? <laughs> oh, you're so young. She uh, has him like tied up in there, and like she'll go in there and like make him watch her do her Star Trek Five fan dance <laughs> because <laughs> she's always wanted to play to a captive audience. <laughs> Have you ever seen 9 to 5? You know, they rigged Dabney Coleman up to this SNM harness thing and that pulls him up to the ceiling. I, heard, I assume he's in that. I heard they're talking about making a sequel to that, but it's uh, yeah, it's just true. the other day. But um, That was a weird little tangent, but well, I enjoyed yeah. it. Let's, let's get back to, to yeah, Star Trek 6. They, yes, yeah. they uh, board the Enterprise, and we get that cool shuttle approach to Space Dock, and we have to see this really gorgeous set of the Enterprise A bridge, which I think it looks great. Yes. Uh, much better than it looked in Star Trek. Trek 5. It's probably the best bridge in all of Star Trek, potentially, at least in the running, I would say. And we're also introduced to Lieutenant Valeris, played yeah. by uh, Kim uh, Cattrall. Cattrall. And probably best known for Sex in the City and Mannequin. And oh, shot her in Mannequin? I haven't seen Mannequin in ages. She was but... the Mannequin in Mannequin. Okay, that was so long ago. Word. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, Nicholas Meyer wanted to have the character Savick return. He wanted to do, like, an end to her story. And he really wanted to bring back Christy Alley. But at, at this point... After the Robin Curtis debacle. Yes, but at, well, I don't know if it, I call it debacle. I think yeah. Robin Curtis was That's kind of how it came to be but, known in fandom, I think, though. Well... But, but, but somewhat unfairly, I think. Yeah, again, I budgetary issues. Paramount said, we're not even going to offer this to Christy Alley's agent because there's no way we can afford her, so we're not even going to try. 
And That's she, a funny thought nowadays. She had become like a big hit from her, her television work. Yeah. And so since he he couldn't get Christy Alley, he created a new character. Which I did not approve of. I think it should have been Savick. <laughs> Uh, I think, uh, given her kind of uh, traitorous actions and the fact that I mostly found almost all good things in the character of Savick, I, I, I'm glad that she didn't get put through the events of this, personally. It, it does seem, it's, it's weird, because there's a character very like Savick <laughs> in the role that's not Savick. But I also don't like, I don't particularly like Kim Cattrall's portrayal of Valeris. I, there's something that bothers me in almost... Like, just about her portrayal of it in almost every scene. I don't... I like, never... as in... Like, you it's good acting or bad acting? <laughs> it's, it feels more like it's... It, there's a certain... Height, her, her version of being a Vulcan is kind of a little more heightened. I I, I think it's... Part, part of it is just the script stuff for me. Like, I feel like... You know, um... Savick was not a standard Vulcan in a lot of ways. and But I but her, her script was all well written. And there was... Maybe it was... And it's whatever Kirstie Alley brought to the role... Uh, Valeris, um, just that she feels like a little more cartoonish to me. And that's how I feel. That's, that's, it goes to my sort of broader complaints about the movie's, uh, dialogue at times. But yeah, she feels a little cartoonish. And, and so I just never, I, I didn't like her character the way I kind of instantly liked Savick. I, I thought she was more three-dimensional than Robin Curtis Savick. But, but was, that was because she was given more to that, work with. That's also, Nicholas Meyer directed her very differently from how Robin Curtis was directed by Nimoy. Yeah. Where Nimoy wanted her to be like a cold, stoic Vulcan, pure yeah. logic. Uh, whereas Nicholas Meyer always wanted Savick to have a, a, a little bit more humanity in her performance. Yeah. Um, but I, I would prefer if they had Christy Alley back as Savick. I would have liked to have seen her again. And I think it would have made the the betrayal uh, hit a lot harder. It would it would have had it would have hurt more. Uh, did y'all when y'all were watching this? Were you like, gee, I wonder who the traitor is? I actually ha- wasn't thinking about it that much. I don't um, think I was either. And mm-hmm. I kind of I, I I remember kind of um, piecing it together right as it was revealed. So it, it, I think that's actually about ideal for when it, when it, for a screenwriter to see is that. The, the moment before the uh, big reveal happens, there's that moment of anticipation as you get it just before it's revealed. Um, and and we'll, we'll get into that momentarily, but I, I think with the, the, the big clue to indicate that it's her, I think, is, is the log entry. We'll talk about that when we get there. But I actually, like, I hadn't questioned where did that come from? How did the Klingons get that? If, if the movie had been, like, a little bit longer, maybe if someone had mentioned that again somewhere, I probably would have connected it then. I mean, I don't know. I was also, like, uh, a lot younger when I watched this the first time, so... Certainly the first time I saw it, I was completely so busy trying to keep track of all the stuff going on and all the special effects and and stuff. I didn't even think about trying to even try to figure out who was the murderer. I think I just assumed she was going to be kind of a new character, and I I didn't know quite what they would do with her. I think I, I probably guessed that there might be some twists and turns... But because she is actively involved in the case, being, you know, in a very red herring, classical red herring way, I kind of took it on face value that she wasn't going to be yeah. implicated. And just thought like, oh yeah, she's kind of like Savick, especially when she has like a, a very similar uh, exchange with Captain Kirk about using thrusters only while on space dock. Mm-hmm. Right. She's, she's, she's kind of like trying to quote some rules at him and has to get shut down by mm-hmm. the old pro. What? Um, and I love like that big smile that Scotty gives the uh, the warp core as they're like leaving space dock, just because it's like 
Scotty really loves his engines, but He's like, now I've got a Galaxy class. Yeah, I'm like, now, now I'm on the set of the Next Generation. This movie, like Star Trek Five, does reuse a lot of uh, Next Generation sets. I think they get away with it a little bit better in this movie. It's it's set for engineering. And, uh, I, I do kind of like the Enterprise A uh, having some like new Galaxy class looking type sets. It, it reminds you that the Enterprise A is a different ship than the one who blew up in Star Trek Three. Yeah. But uh, we we get the the diplomatic mission. the The Enterprise is en route to meet Gorkon and his ship, and Kurt gives the the log entry that will later come back to bite him in the ass, where he says, "You know, I've never I I, I don't trust Klingons. I'll never trust Klingons. I, I'll never forgive them for what they did to my boy." And um, but this is is this I guess the first time they acknowledge David since the Star Trek three, except for that one line in Star Trek four. Doesn't doesn't Robin Curtis tell Kirk that uh, that he died like saving them? Right. Um, but other than that, they they haven't talked about David uh, probably because like they didn't want to be like uh, a Debbie Downer bringing up like the dead son and the last two movies that were going for like a more like fun tone. Yeah. Right. But here you actually see his uh, you know that he has a framed picture of him that he's looking at you know and uh, with with sadness. Yeah. And I've I've said on here before that you know in my opinion I think like the most. Uh, the, the the worst thing that happens in the human experience is is the death of a loved one, and I I think like um, uh, psychiatrists uh, like actually classify like someone experiencing like the death of a child as like the most stressful thing that that people go through. Hmm. That that fits. Um, so so that should have like weight to it, and it should be something that like years later Kirk still. He 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 still he still deals with that baggage. The interesting thing is, of course, he's also it has to be like come with its own brand of guilt for having been separated from David during all of that time yeah. and not having been able to even like it's like he didn't forge a bond and into until the like he was an adult and when he did he was taken from him you know within immediately months. yeah yeah um, so that's a it's a particularly bad terrible situation or a particular stripe of terrible. You can also sit there and wonder. If I had stolen the Enterprise a little bit faster, would I have saved David? Oh, I never thought of that, but yeah, I'm maybe. sure Kirk would have thought of it. Yeah, without a doubt. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> we also get that scene with with Spock and Valeris in Spock's quarters, where he's telling her that he that he's he's leaving the Enterprise and he wants her to like take his place, and um, which is an excellent scene. There, <laughs> it is. Like the, the music works really well in there. They're uh, drinking out of, like, this weird Vulcan glass, doing kind of like a weird alien passing of the torch ceremony. Yeah. Uh, we have that, that cool piece of artwork on the wall that was a, a depiction of, of Eden and being cast from Paradise, yeah. which is kind of a reference to Star Trek V, maybe? Yeah, um, it's certainly a much but, better use of, of religious imagery. So. But yeah, with, with, with Spock saying that uh, it's a reminder that uh, not everything lasts, everything must come to an end. And he, he gives the line, uh, you know, logic, logic, log. Logic is is often the the beginning of things, but not the end, which they would reuse in Star Trek Discovery. And I dislike that that was something that Spock knew when he was young. I kind of like that being something that like he figured out uh, now as as, a, as an older character in Star well, Trek. There's 6. also a question of being told it and understanding it for a statement like that are two very different things. Uh, I think I think Star Trek. Discovery was just trying to like use some some good memorable dialogue and didn't, didn't put that much thought into it. But yeah, they kind of suggested it was like sort of like a Vulcan axiom, and yeah. not a um, 
not something that he thought of in the moment or that a, a bit of wisdom he arrived at. But anyways, we, we, the, the scene uh, is, is pretty memorable and they do have a big callback to it later in the movie. Yeah. Um, we do get to see the uh, beautiful Katinga model, uh, that, that gorgeous starship design uh, fr- that was, you know, the model was first used for the motion picture, mm-hmm. uh, very faithfully resembling Matt Jeffrey's D7 from the 60s. Yeah. And they repainted it and stuck little gold fi- uh, gold, gold fiddly bits all yeah. over it. Because yes. it's Kronos 1. It is, it is the Air Force 1 of the Klingon Empire. Yes. It's super cool looking and you get to see it kind of cruise uh, smoothly past their view screen and uh, come to a that, uh, come to a parked spot uh, shortly before it's going to get photon torpedoed. Yeah. But it, yeah, it looks great and it, it looks dangerous. Like I remember watching this for the first time and being kind of on the edge of my seat because I was I was ready for like like oh like this Gorkon guy like so, like they're going to come to blows. He's going to try to like take advantage of Starfleet or something. Like I, I Kirk didn't trust him and I didn't trust him either. And he's kind of like a, you know a scary looking guy when he when he beams over. He's got like that. That, that cool wardrobe, and he's got, like, an right. elephant tusk for a cane. Right. And he's got a giant ass. Yeah, it's like he's got kind of a cloak with giant shoulder pads and stuff like yeah. that. And he's played by the inestimable David Warner. David Warner. Getting to do much more than he did in Trek yes. 5 as a cigarette-smoking, cigarette down-on-his-luck yeah. uh, ambassador. Yes. I love me some David Warner. <laughs> so, he was amazing, even in doing his... his his Abraham Lincoln impression. Yeah, and we also meet uh, the the Chancellor's daughter, and I always have a hard time remembering her name. As it as it Burr Boar is as, the, is how you pronounce it. As it Boar 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 Boar. Like yeah, there's Boar. much more or in it. I'm just gonna call her uh, yeah. Zeddy. <laughs> um, and uh, the uh, ch- the Chancellor's chief of staff, General Chang, yes. played by. Uh, the the great Christopher Plummer, yes. yeah, a, a character with a or an actor with Shakespearean uh, training who brings all that to bear in a very literal way, uh, uh, speaking uh, many a, many a, a memorable line from Shakespeare in the original Klingon. Or well, he's not speaking it in, but he he alludes to that. Yeah, and My- Myers wrote the part for him without even checking to see if they could get him, and he was like, <laughs> "Oh, I hope." And that's why there was all the Shakespeare stuff in there. And he's like, "Go get Plummer. I don't care how you do it. Just don't come back until you've got him to say yes." <laughs> and and he, he didn't want to play a Klingon because he didn't want to deal with all the makeup. So they yeah. gave him like very minimal makeup to yeah. to get him to do it. Um, I kind of like how that ends up showing sort of variety among them. Like, me too. Even if it's just inadvertent because of like his weird demand. Well, understandable demand, I guess. But what I like about Chang is his kind of... He has a sort of infectious, slightly malicious exuberance. <laughs> like, he's like... He's really fun to watch. And he has cool chemistry. He has cool chemistry with, with uh, Shatner. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, you can tell, like, this guy, he, he's he's wanted to meet Kirk. He actually says, like... Uh, I've I've always wanted to meet you, warrior to warrior. Yeah. And the way he says it, you're like, uh, oh, like that guy wanted to fight Kirk. Yeah. And he's got like that eye patch, so you know, like this guy is like scrapped before. Been through some yeah. stuff. Yeah. And um, part of the reason why they might have like good chemistry is because Plummer and Shatner knew each other when they were both actors in Canada on the stage uh, decades before this. Shatner was Christopher Plummer's understudy. Huh. That's crazy, and and Plummer said that arguably he, Plummer is such a better overall actor than him. Yeah. I, I always thought Shatner is actually a better actor than people give him credit for, but Plummer is. is a is a particular level of skill. He is, but, <laughs> but Plummer said he did get jealous sometimes when Shatner went on stage uh, for him, and and 
he felt like he kind of just really stole the show and and really like grabbed a hold of the audiences and in ways that he felt like might be outstaging him. And uh, I, I can see Shatner as, uh, being the guy who can um, go, you know, like really dial it up to eleven. Well, right, yeah, Shatner's acting is probably a little more suited for stage work, anyway. Yes, yeah. So, <laughs> and yet I think it's also what I think it's part of what made him perfect for Kirk because Kirk is. Somewhere between, you know, he was a modern hero in a bit of, like, the NASA mold, but there's no doubt that he had at least a foot in, like, a little Buck Rogers, uh, Flash Gordon kind of larger-than-life pulp yes. quality, um, so that so that a larger-than-life quality suited him. Yeah. And we also have uh, Valeris, I almost called her Savic, we have uh, Valeris <laughs> suggest uh, maybe maybe we should open a case of Romulan L. Um, you know, she's obviously, like, trying to, like, get them drunk so that they will uh, fall into the into the uh, plan they have for them. Right, you say obviously, but the, the first time you're watching this, you're probably just thinking, oh, here's a Vulcan who knows how to party. Yes. Oh, or, yeah, or she's just trying to... Um, she recognized that, that you need helpful. to lighten up the mood, yeah. Well, you have a, like that. Spock does, uh, like, they, they after the thing is over, the whole meeting is a chore for everybody. Everybody's walking on eggshells, and they have to move topics around a few times. They're eating blue squid. They're eating weird blue squid. And, and blue whales. There are actual little rubber whale-shaped blue whale things on their plates. Uh, Nicholas yeah. Meyer supposedly, I don't know if the story is true, but he supposedly like offered to like pay any actor who would actually eat some of the blue squid. Yeah. He's like, I will pay you cash right now. And the only one who would do it was Shatner. Yeah. <laughs> that kind of fits. Um, he's a big man. No, I'm just kidding. Um, uh, the, it's there. Is it Chancellor Gurkhan who says that the Federation is little more than a humans-only well, No, that's his daughter. It's his daughter who says that. That's right. Uh, it's a, uh, it's, it's again, it's like, it's a very, a, here's a reflection of 1980s kind of racial debate in America, but it's an effective line, I think. And, and the acknowledgement of, uh, inalienable human rights would sound really weird to a non-human alien. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah, they're, Which, they're parsing the language for, you know, to pick at it and everything. And you know, I would hope the translator would have fixed that. You would hope. <laughs> um, but we do get that squared at the end where we say learn that everybody's human. Yes. So they, they, they do revisit that and say no. The, the, yeah, it's a very liberal use of the word human. It has yeah. a, a quite broad definition. Yeah, well, but given that they can interbreed, arguably perhaps correct. But... Well, I mean, like, we're getting into, like, <laughs> trivial semantics yes, at that true. point. Oh, it also, but but it does kind of fit in nicely with the them acknowledging it's not just a handoff to next generation, but it's a thoughtfulness about language when they say where no one has gone before in the end. Yeah, that kind of reflects the it, maybe inadvertently, but reflects the criticism from her. And uh, Gorkhan also has the toast to the undiscovered country or to the the future. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, th- that that was always a little bit weird because he was certainly using it to mean the future, but the undiscovered country in Hamlet's speech is death. <laughs> Hamlet Act 3, Scene 1. <laughs> yeah, you remember more from remembering this than I do from reading Shakespeare. <laughs> but isn't it... Is, is it really death, or is it just like the unknown that, that comes with death? It's, it's uh, like I think a, it is like the unknown. Yeah, it's yeah. The, Is it's there this, an afterlife? That's why he's... That, yeah, that's why he's, he's afraid, uh, yeah, Hamlet, of, um, of what, what 
might happen after he dies. Because that's, that's really how they talk about the undiscovered country in this movie. And, like, right. like the fear that Kirk has. It, it is a, a fear of the unknown that is the future. Right. And I do think there's no doubt in my mind that uh, Nicholas Meyer knew his Shakespeare. Yeah, and, and I think, like, <laughs> like the, the, the framing for the Star Trek story was that, you know, like, the future can be scary, um, but it, it can also be be good and promising and so it's kind of like a balancing of your uh, your optimism with your your fears of, of when it when it comes when you're dealing with change right interestingly um i just finished i'm almost done reading nicholas myers's little autobiography or memoirs and he says that now in a post 9-11 world he perhaps would have portrayed these conspiracy people, the conspirators in Star Trek VI, slightly more positively than he had at the time. He perhaps thought that, that he seemed to think that the, nine, the, the disaster of 9-11 and the growth of terrorism might have been in due, part due to the falling of the, the, the cold, end of the Cold War. And he felt that perhaps that should have been reflect if he reflected in his movie and i was like i don't know if i agree with that I mr myers i don't understand that i don't quite understand it either but that was what um, he said is he kind of regretted that's so his biography was i guess obviously written post 9-11 yes it's interesting okay um, um yeah that's weird that was weird that's uh, just yeah um but so. we should talk about the the actual um this the assault yeah when when the torpedoes hit that ship, and we're just like, oh no, what the hell's going on? And then you have the zero-gravity uh, assassination. Right, a, a pretty bloody, gory sequence for Star Trek, maybe slightly reined in by the fact that it's filled with purple CG Klingon blood, yeah. which yeah. I never quite liked. But it's it's a really well done scene though. It is, and I love like the music in it. I love that the, like the, the the two guys are so deadly. How they're just like marching through the ship, right? And uh, the 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 cool they're black... almost assassinating people the way the Terminator went through killing the, the cops in, station in the first yeah. Terminator. Yeah, and the like the cool like uh, black assault phasers from Star Trek Five with the blue beams that I love. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I like everything about that sequence, and it was it was it was shocking to like I remember my first experience with this movie very well. Like I, re- I remember being like nervous about Gorkon and the Klingons beam over. I remember thinking like no, I think Chang Chang is the one who's like the most uh, antagonistic towards Kirk. I think I think. He's up to something. And then we see start these two Starfleet personnel massacre these Klingons. And I'm like, oh my god, what is going on? <laughs> and, uh, and the fact that one of them, uh, one of the Klingons gets their arms sheared off, uh, is, is particularly kind of disturbing. Yeah, that, that was shocking. Does he, he survives though, right? Yes. Because you, you see him at yeah, the end. Yeah, you see him testify. Yeah. But then when, then when, uh, Chang, um, gets get control of the ship again, and he calls the Enterprise and, and threatens like blow them out of the sky. I was expecting like like a big battle. And then when Kirk says, uh, "No, tell them we surrender." Yeah, I was like, I just remember like my jaw being on the floor. Like, <laughs> Did they show that in the trailer? Uh, I, Do you remember? I don't. I didn't. I, didn't I, I, I wonder if that was shown because it would be a big. It would be one of the big dramatic moments. It's actually one of my favorite moments in the whole movie. That the kind of the sharpness when is it Uhura who doesn't like. Is looking at him like, do you really want to yeah. say that? And he's like, we surrender. Um, and he's very intense about and, it. And then her repeating it, where like, like her performance, where she she is like both very like dutiful and both very like scared of what's going on. Right. Um, when she's just telling them like, you know, this is Enterprise. We surrender. We surrender. Like the way that she played that was great. 
It's interesting because in the context of this movie, in a way, that's kind of the most heroic thing Kirk does. Yes. Is to sacrifice his pride and potentially safety for the sake of Galactus. And perhaps his whole crew if they decide yeah. to fire right. even and, after he's surrendered. Kirk's a good soldier. He like he, he does like disobey orders sometimes, but he I mean he normally has a good reason when he does it. For the most part he's gonna he, he's he, gonna do the mission. He 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 does not dis, he, he generally does not disobey orders for selfish reasons. He disobeys orders because he feels he can save more people more Yeah for for the way. greater good. For the greater good. Um um and in this case, the greater good means like, surrendering. So. <laughs> you might be thinking about the uh, needs of the many. Yes. And then when they, when they go over to Gorkon's ship, you actually do see Spock slap the viridium patch onto Kirk's back. A tra- a, a giant like Velcro tracker looking yeah. thing. Yes. That, was, that was Nicholas Meyer putting his like Sherlock Holmes clues in the in the in the story yeah. or on the screen, I should say. Yeah. Right, and Father, I think, like, I think I thought nothing of it at the time, or I wouldn't. Have, I don't generally look for much for yeah. clues in the movies. But I, I didn't you did, it. did you? Oh, no, I thought it was, Brian, Brian said he caught it the first. The time. The first time yes. I saw it, I was like, he just stuck something on spot uh, back of Kirk. What? What the heck is that? When and then I, I was watching it later on. What is that thing yeah. on the back of his uniform? Yeah. <laughs> When I watched it the second time, though, I did look to see yeah. if you could see that, and I was so pleased that they actually do plant that in there. Yeah. And that they, they always show that patch on his back after yeah. that. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is weird that, like, the nowhere to, like, cling on guards think, like, what's this thing? And, like, take it yeah. off of them. But uh, I, I can look past that. I thought that was pretty cool. What happens when you scan it? It is giving mm-hmm. off a signal that can be seen for 40 light years. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> ah, let him have it. <laughs> And then we have we have Doctor McCoy trying to save Gorkon, which again like that surprised me because I I was thinking well that guy I thought was going to be the bad guy but yeah. I guess he was he was sincere like like mm-hmm. when he when he tells Kirk don't let it end this way I was like oh no that guy is actually a good guy yep. so you were never th- thought to get uh, you know you never just like Kirk you never thought to take Gorkon at his word yes <laughs> nice <laughs> so. Arguably, we only had uh, to the the show to go on, uh, the show and the movies, and the Klingons had nearly always been shown to be duplicitous. So, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I have to admit, I, I think I'd had some of that th- those beats spoiled for me when I saw the movie the first time, so I can't tell you what my mm-hmm. my original reaction was. Largely, oh, this is the this is when they assassinate the Klingon. So okay, you know, <laughs> I'm trying to think the, are the the most genial interactions with Klingons the. Otherwise, the the barroom fight in Trouble with Tribbles, which is um, at least kind of just a dust up. But I'm thinking, of course, of uh, well, the, day, of the, day of the Dove. They they kind of the they can't kind of in on good terms. I need no help. When to Kate, yeah. Kate, Kate, yeah, like <laughs> smacks the shit out of Kirk's yeah. back, or, uh, but. Which, uh, in a way, Kirk does with Spock in Trek 09. I mean, he actually does the exact back pat too hard. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and then in Star Trek V, uh, they actually end on pretty good terms with the Klingons then. Yes. So. That's true. Uh, they also... Uh, you know, who was, it? Who was the, the terrible Klingon? Claw? Yeah. Is that, is that it? Uh, you got to figure after he was forced to apologize like that, he probably went on some sort of rampage or something. <laughs> he was like, "I'm going to go kill like 20 Federation people now." <laughs> Mind you, we had had the Next Generation showing us Worf was not all bad by this right. point. Yeah, when, when this movie came out, season five of TNG was on the air. But they yeah. just yeah, Trek uh, TNG the, just began with uh, with the uh, relations having cooled well, uh, between but, them. So this it was obviously important to tell the story of how it happened. Yes. Which I also really enjoy in this movie because I like them like doing something that like ties into continuity and ties into the next generation, and, and it has uh, Worf in it. And yeah, they 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 have Colonel Worf, who uh, we've 
fandom or someone eventually determined as the grandfather of Worf. I, I think it was planned from while they were writing the script and stuff that that's who he was. And they also, they also have the the final uh, peace talks take place at uh, Camp Kittimer because they had mentioned Kittimer, Kittimer Accords in The Next Generation. You know, like that original meaning, I think, had to do more with uh, yesterday's Enterprise and a battle with the Romulans that took place at Kittimer. Mm, and but, no, no, that took place at Naranda 3. Oh, that was Naranda 3. What was Worf it? came from Kittimer. Worf's, yeah, Worf. Romulans killed Worf's parents at, at, at Kittimer. Kittimer. Yes. yes. Um, but yeah, th- this was a good like repurpose and reuse of that. So yeah, like that Camp Kittimer, like that's where that's where Worf lived when he was a very little baby. And then Klingon, or Romulans came and blew it up and yeah. killed his parents. Um, but the, uh, way that, that after, after Gorkon dies, when Chang, uh, places Kirk and McCoy under arrest, mm-hmm. I love like little, little thing he does where he says, uh, uh, under article 17 of your interstellar law, he really yeah. stresses like your, mm-hmm. like calling them like, like hypocrites and like you're vi- in yeah. violation of like. Like he gets to chew up some courtroom scenery there. Yeah, yeah then, well, this is, like, before that. Yeah. Oh, okay. But then, yeah. then when we actually do get into the trial, that's when, like, Christopher Plummer can just be, like, unleashed and go crazy. <laughs> and it works because Chang is trying to put on a show also. Yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah, no, it all, it, it like, makes sense. Like, uh, Chang himself, the character, is a scene chewer. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, and the, the, the big moment that everyone loves is, um... Uh, don't wait for the translation. Answer me now. Which that actually came from uh, something going on at the UN during the Cuban Missile Crisis. Okay, yeah, I knew it was a real life event of some sort. Yeah, you you mentioned that the other day, and I had not known that that was drawn from real life because it otherwise it almost sounds a little outrageous. Yeah. But uh, but uh, that's that's pretty cool. Yeah. Um, oh, and I love when Spock has that line that says um, it, it'll be in the hands of the diplomats. And then we cut to the Klingon ambassador from Star Trek IV. Yeah. This is another thing I remember watching this the first time. I was like, oh, not this guy again. Yeah. I was like, Kirk will never get a fair trial now with this guy. Uh, but we get to see Sarek in the President of the Federation. And they're, again, keeping up with like the canon in the continuity there in Paris, which is where the, I think the next generation established established. The president of the Federation's office is in Paris on Earth. Yeah, well, I, I'm not sure if they established that or not. I, I know they kept with it after that point, but yeah, and and there, his office looks suspiciously like Ten Forward. But <laughs> just the guy that's uh, the president played by uh, Kurtwood Smith. Yes, the, uh, who, who would go on to be on DS9 and Voyager, and uh, most famously known from RoboCop and that '70s show, Clarence Boddicker and Red Foreman. Foreman. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Foreman. Um, but I had forgotten he was in this. It's been a little while since I've seen it. And he's playing the species of uh, a character we saw on the Saratoga in Star Trek IV. Yeah. Uh, I'm not sure what species that is, but it, it looks... The novelization claims Delton, but that doesn't make much sense yeah, to me. It looks more like sense. he's a uh, keyboardist in a prog rock band. Well, with like his, his facial hair, he looks kind of Klingon-ish, and I think yeah. that's kind of confusing, so I wish they had done something that was like less Klingon. Yeah. yeah. but He was uh, supposed to be blind, um, but... Uh, they clearly don't seem to be playing it that way in the office scene where they have him eyes, shots of his eyes responding to various things. Well, they do in the the scene that's only available on the DVD and the VHS that was not in the theater and was not on the Blu-ray. When uh, Colonel West comes into the, the president's office and presents a plan to go and rescue Kirk and McCoy called Operation Retrieve, yeah. he puts on like his little sunglasses to like, look at the chart. Yeah. 
So that might have been like his version of Jordy's visor yeah. or something. I don't know. But the... He, he does kind of act blind at the Kittimer conference, though. Yeah. A little so, staring so I, I, Yeah, yeah. I, I don't think they'd quite figured it in, like, halfway through the production. It's weird to have a character that may or may not be blind in a movie. Usually that is a thing yes. that you, it's a binary choice. Yeah, well, I think they but... decided halfway through not to, that he wasn't blind, but then they never, <laughs> but they left that old footage there. And Yeah. I, I don't I, think it particularly adds much to it to have him blind or not, but... I like it better with him not being blind. I think if... So I would have they dropped it. If they'd stuck with the blind thing, I, I would have liked it. The half-assing, I prefer to just headcanon that he wasn't blind, and that's probably the way we're supposed to How would you it. sum up his character as a person? Uh, I, I mean, we classically president, good, classically yeah. good presidential. Yeah, so we think that generic the, movie president. Do we think the blindness it. was was originally going to be one of those things where, like, like the uh, justice is blind kind of thing? He's going into it without presupposition. It was just supposed to be. Look, blind people can become president in the future. Isn't I can that, see that awesome? Well, <laughs> but I could. Nicholas Meyer is a guy who does also work with symbology and multiple levels of yeah. meaning and stuff. So I could see him as potentially having meant it to. Like, at one point in the script, maybe it was going to be meaningful, and then they kind of dropped it, and so they dropped it as in the story. In the uh, cut scene from from the theatrical cut and from the Blu-ray with uh, Colonel West, who's played by the Odo actor from DS9, uh, René Barjolos, I can't say his <laughs> French last name. I'm so glad I'm not law. the only person who but, can. <laughs> um, uh, in, anyways, uh, Colonel West comes in as like this very like hawkish Starfleet officer, and and the president even asked him, like, well, what will happen if, if this leads to a war? And he says something like, uh, like, quite frankly, Mr. President, we would clean their chronometers. Yeah. <laughs> um, so he's, like, ready to go to war. He's actually part of the conspiracy and would actually be the guy attempting an assassination on that president. Now, now, can, we, can we all accept that the conspiracy is a Section 31 thing? I, I, yeah, I think that's extremely fitting. Yeah, yeah that works. And that's, that's how I, I uh, viewed it for years. Yes. Now, next question. Is Valeris a member of Section 31, or is she recruited for this particular issue, uh, situation? Either, either, I think, would work. All right. Um, uh, you know, there was a small thing that they threw out early on. Um, I, th- I think when they're initially putting uh, sending Kirk off on the mission, um, which is that there's what fifty years left in the um, in the lifespan of the Klingon Empire. They think yeah. after this ma- major disaster, this, this major um, ecological they, crisis, right? They could yeah. eke out a few more decades. Um, but that somebody also says that they think that like the kind of the hardliner conservative element in the Klingon uh, government, if they don't assist them, could decide to go out in a blaze of glory. Right? Yeah. Yes. The, the which. That feels like a pretty good analysis of the Klingons. Yes. Yeah, that, that, that's fitting with, with how we've seen the Klingons depicted in, in other pieces of Star Trek. If you back them into a corner, they will choose violent death over yeah. any other. So. Yeah, it's a small thing, but I, but I, I liked that uh, acknowledgement that there's there actually is some self-interest in, in helping them in this. It's not just 100% a mission of mercy. Yeah. You, you might have a reason to do it. One has to assume that big shockwave wiped out a large number of their ships, or West wouldn't be so. So, yeah, we can win the war now. We don't have to worry about winning the war. We but can I like definitely that, do I like that. that the president rejected that plan in this the scene that's not on the Blu-ray, and then and then um, the the Starfleet CNC he actually says to the, the president, "You know, those men have, have literally saved the planet." And then the president has like this cool presidential line where he yeah. says, "And now they'll save it again by standing trial." Yeah, and I was like, "Yeah, that's that's how you president." Yes. <laughs> uh, he acknowledges consequences of actions. Yes. Takes, people take responsibility. 
Imagine yeah. that. Yeah, it must be nice. Yes. Um, do you want to talk about like the the mystery on the Enterprise and uh, Spock as Sherlock Holmes, uh, or possibly a descendant of Sherlock Holmes? I assume he's just a descendant of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, <laughs> or or a descendant of a Vulcan who came up with that that piece of, of Vulcan logic. I, I, we're I'm all, fine with him just being a descendant of Doyle. I just to, just there. to clarify, we're talking about his when you've eliminated the the impossible, whatever remains, no matter how improbable, must be the truth. Yeah. Right. A quote that Data will later drop. Nope, it's, nope. Data used it before this movie. Oh, uh, chronologically for the yeah. characters. But I, I think people people forget that, that TNG did that first before Nicholas Meyer. Oh, yeah. No, I, I, I doubt Dick Nicholas Meyers knew that Data did that. I, I agree with you. <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, I think I always did, I thought it was like another, a small tip of the hat to Next Generation, just to, you know, like... Worf, Worf, uh, the actor, what's God, what's his, the, Michael Dorn, Michael Dorn is in there, there's that, and there's the, where no one has gone before, and a few other, what feels like handoffs, I think I thought that was just, like, a not particularly meaningful one, but I thought it was like a little tip uh, of the I'm hat. I'm pretty sure it's because Nicholas Myers loves Sherlock Holmes. Yeah, <laughs> it would certainly that's, fit. That's what I'm thinking. Yeah. Um, but Spock does come to the conclusion rather quickly that it must be a bird of prey that can Cloak and, and not a Romulan bird of prey, which is odd because given the clues he has, the Romulans screwing up the peace treaty sounds perfectly plausible. That that would make a hell of a lot of sense. But it's also at a time where sure. a Romulan ambassador is hanging out on Earth in the president's office. So we, I think the there's practical... a Klingon ambassador there too. Does he? He still yeah. says Klingon bird of prey. I think the practical effect is like Romulans. Do they get any real consideration at all in this movie? Uh, well, other than one of them was part of the conspiracy at the very end, right? Yeah, yeah. But 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 otherwise, they're not really on screen during any of the movie at all, right? No. But this is the first time we ever see a Romulan in a Star Trek movie. Now that I think about it, no, uh, Caitlin Dar, uh, the ambassador in Star Trek Five. Oh yeah, yeah. The, well, the first one that's not in a shitty movie. <laughs> okay. Well, yes. Um, <laughs> but. I, another thing in the, the president's office there is that when the the Klingon ambassador is saying how no these men like must face trial, and the president like looks over at Sarek and Sarek's like I, I'm afraid I have to agree with my esteemed colleague's interpretation of the law or something along those lines. Yeah. But he has to refer to this guy as his esteemed colleague, or he's choosing to do yeah. that to to be diplomatic. Yeah. Um, but it, I I never thought about this before, but when I was watching this uh, recently. I was thinking like, oh, and like in Star Trek Four, these two guys were kind of uh, sparring, and the um, they, they were having uh, like verbal sparring in the in front of the Federation Council, talking mm-hmm. about Kirk and Genesis and stuff. So, uh, Sarek probably really didn't want to like call him like my esteemed colleague, and just it just like made it made this stuff like hurt a little bit. Well, more. yeah, I see. I finally got yeah. Kirk. I finally got Kirk. Is the Klingon, you know, and Sarek's like, yeah, yeah, you got Kirk. Okay. You know, then um, so, hang on one second. I just want to quick double back on the uh, the mystery thing. So it's yeah, one I was of, trying to get to that. It's, it's one of the things I, I I'm not really fond of in the movie. I feel it kind of all is a little bit hokey. There's guys with like mind detectors running through the ship. But why does that bother you? It just look. It's it's so dopey looking. It's just like a like a badass I, tricorder. I they, they, they just designed to look for blood traces. They honestly they they the way they filmed it is part of it. Like I feel like they kind of like showed like everybody look like everybody is looking under books and things like that and. <laughs> it, it kind of it felt more like I was watching because the movie. they because they've proven that the computer log has been has been tampered with so they had to they have to felt, physically look at stuff it felt more like clue to me 
There, there, there was definitely some on the noseness involved they, in know, that she, whole investigation. They pull out the boots and stick them to the wall. No, um, none of that bothers me. It, to me, it feels like it works. It reminds me of in Star Trek Two when people are like running around like loading torpedoes yeah. and doing like very like hands on men and or uh, service people on a ship. Yeah, uh, making shit work. I think that, that there's a there's a tonal difference and maybe a like a, a, ex, a difference in execution where. That looked like almost like it could have been based on real wartime footage of people just running around in, in like a serious situation, and this almost this felt like a stagey thing to me. I guess I don't know. Um, I mean, I will say this: I know that I'm clearly on the outs on this because I know this is a beloved movie and it doesn't really yeah. bother people. But for whatever reason, the combination of kind of the like the what I think of as kind of hokey dialogue throughout a lot of the mystery stuff, um, and and the way it's uh, that that feels to me. Like, I don't get into those scenes. I see, feel distant from see it. See, what bothered me, where it really started to cross the line, Scotty, it, it just happens to be Scotty who finds the uniform, not some random crew member who finds it in the ventilation <laughs> duct. It's Scotty. They hid it in the officer's dining room, which is an odd place to hide something if you're trying to keep people from finding it. Um, and then right after they find the uniforms, they find the bodies. They just open a door and boom, there they are. And it's like... Wow, that was all really convenient. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, it, and even like drawing the conclusion of like the Klingon bird of prey, it felt like we were talking about a second ago. That, yeah, that felt kind of convenient. Well, yeah, yeah, arguably the notion that they like that their sensors aren't good enough to have like very quickly just backtracked and seen where the photon torpedo came from would have been like not literally from their ship, but from like but the logs were tampered with twenty feet under it. Uh, that's yeah, true. Yeah. But like I would think that the, you know Klingons would also have this kind of information. Even if their ship got bumped up. Well, they up. also have one of the conspirators on that ship, so you'd think those logs would also be tampered. Yeah, and I guess he's so. the guy in charge by, after Gorkhan's dead. So, yeah. It actually, that, that part does actually it's work one of those surprisingly things where it's almost like, well. Because they literally see it on the screen, and I'm like, I think you would, like, after as, as much as they've seen, they would say, like, it didn't look like it came from us. Um, how but, do you know? Because they didn't cut to an external shot showing <laughs> it firing. Right. That's just how things work. <laughs> Uh, we we got to talk about Rurapente. Ah, uh, yeah. yes. Alaska! Yeah, this was shot at Brian's home world of Alaska. Yes. And we also had a uh, Star Trek veteran actor, uh, W. Morgan Shepard, playing the Klingon Warden. Yes. Who, uh, we, we should acknowledge him because he recently passed away back uh, a few months ago in January. Hmm. But he also played Ira Graves in the TNG episode, The uh, Schizoid Man. And one of my favorite characters in Babylon Five, the Soul Hunter. Yes. Uh, he's just got a—he's yeah. got a great kind of gravelly voice and presence, and he always yeah. brings. He's never failed to bring something cool to his roles. Yes. He, he played a character in the Voyager episode Bliss, and he has also uh, uh, in Star Trek 09, He was a Vulcan in Star Trek 09. Yes. Oh wow! Well, so I forgot he I was keep the, forgetting that one. The, the one up there the, was the, like, "So Spock, we were going to let you into the science right. academy." He's the science minister, I think. Yeah, is how yeah, he is yeah. credited. But so. yeah, so on the planet we get the get to meet the character Mardia, who's um, there to like help uh, yeah. get Kirk and McCoy out of the prison. Played by the model Iman, uh, known to many as David Bowie's wife. Yes, um, and um, she's a camaloid. Yes, a uh, shape changing computer morph te- morphing technology using. That was the first uh, time they had a morphing effect in Star Trek. Yeah, what it, I think it had been in, like, what, Willow and maybe that Michael Jackson video, uh, Black and White, Which, I think. Oh, maybe. Um, but, yeah, it was just starting to hit 
as and a, T2 was that same T2, year. T2, yes. yes this is yeah. the biggest. It, it looked better than the, the the animation they used for Morphine and Next Generation Season 2 episode, The, the Dolphin. Yeah. Where uh, yeah. Wesley Crusher's girlfriend turns into like a big monster. Mm-hmm. It's a pretty good effect. Um, what do y'all think of her character? Uh, she's fine for what she is. Apparently she was meant, they, they really originally wanted Sigourney Weaver and she was supposed oh, to be much cool. more of a Han Solo type. And totally instead like we got a much more suave and, and sophisticated kind of She seemed control. like a kind of, yeah, a confident, I don't know, like, well, she did seem like a smuggler type person. Um... Uh, I will say, like, I love the idea of the prison colony, but I feel like that, like, Kirk's acting is kind of camp- too campy in it for me. Um, I liked his talk with McCoy in, yes. the, in the bunk. That I is love, excellent. I love that conversation. See, what do they talk about? Um, um, are you afraid of the future? That was the general idea I was trying to get across right, or yeah. something like well, that. Because McCoy says, oh yeah, we're Kobayashi Maru. Yeah. Which I always say that, like, if it's like a... If, if none of your options are good, I always say, like, yeah, the situation is a Kobayashi Maru. Yeah. I do think, I, I agree that that's the, some of the, that maybe the strongest part of the scene, and that's, the, it's the, the classic actors being put together with minimal, you know, interruptions. <laughs> and, and, but, like, Kirk talks about how he was terrified of, he was terrified of the future. It's that fear of the undiscovered country that I, mm-hmm. that I brought up earlier. Yeah. And that he, he it's, 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 it's really getting to the heart of what the, the story is about. Yeah, and that he, he was used to hating Klingons, and that he says that Spock was right. And I think this is when he says, like, it never occurred to him to trust Gorkhan. Yes. Mm-hmm. And, but this is also when he gets, r- like, really, you know, Kirk, we've said it before, is like, he's a doer. And, like, when he has, like, an objective, he's, he's going to find a way to get it done. And this is where he, uh, he, he realizes, you know, there's a lot more at stake than just me and, and my, my friend, Dr. McCoy here. There, there are still peace talks continuing. And, cause you remember at the trial when the, the judge said, you know, it, because of the peace talks, we're not going to do the death penalty. Right. So he's like, that means the talks are going to continue. That means that the real assassins are going to try again. So at that point, he's, he's, he has even more motivation to mm. escape so that he can, he can save the day. And I love, I love Kirk being like, oh, like, here's, here's a mission. This, someone needs to step in and be the hero and make some shit happen here. I'm going to do it. Yeah. But they, uh, is that, is that the is it during those scenes where he says I was used to hating the Klingons? Yes, yeah. yeah. So it's a it's a good line. That's, I and you know this is where I, I can forgive seeing that ugliness in these characters because they acknowledge it. Right. Yeah. Well, uh, a huge when they were Nimoy and, and Myers were talking about it, a huge touchstone was who am I when I don't have my enemy anymore? Was was, was the the fear that is the the core of what it, who are who am I when I don't have my enemy? And I don't so, know yeah. if that needs to be like too big of a focus because Kirk did a lot of shit besides like deal with the. Klingons. Well, it wasn't just like, Kirk; it's everybody's yeah. trying to has to answer that question. But, uh, for the, the Klingons are like uh, the primary villain of Star Trek at this point, but they're not the only thing in Star Trek. Like like right? Starfleet yeah. the, the, does a lot of other stuff. When the movies came about, things started to become a little bit more people started to kind of buy into the cliche of Kirk um, a little bit more. And the movies even played to cliche sometimes more. So I, I think um, the the notion of him having to do it, it it makes sense because that's kind of the legend had be, kind of come to be believed by the audience. And so he he you know, Nixon had to go to China. Yeah. Um, that is cool that, like, Starfleet had, like, yeah, we gotta, like, send, like, our, our, our top dog that, you know, like, the Klingons would think twice before they mess with them. 
Um, and that is insightful in that, yeah, Klingons are going to respect a warrior who has who right, has yeah. fought many battles. Right, and if Kirk can actually, like, propose peace, then it will be more meaningful than if somebody else I did. mean, Chang respects the hell out of Kirk. Yeah. I mean, he said, like, he always wanted to meet him. Uh, of course he wanted to meet him, like, in battle, but... <laughs> yeah. He gets his wish. Though, know. in the end, he's just kind of sucker-punching him to death. You know, well, that's not very terribly <laughs> honorable, but... Well, let, let's, let's get to that. First, first we have, like, the, the Enterprise goes past the... Uh, the guard station, I guess. Yeah, the, and their the, version of Epsilon Nine. Yeah, the Klingon version of Epsilon Nine. Uh, yeah, is, you want to talk about on the nose? I like that scene. I I like it. This no. is the one where they all have to, where they're diving through books to translate Klingon. Yeah, and Uhura is is garbling or. It, or her skill kind of becomes a bit of a joke. That might be my well, least but, favorite part of the movie. <laughs> I, they never said that like Uhura like knew different languages or anything. That's something that was like established in the Kelvin movies. Yeah, Kelvin, but, Kelvin Uhura did her took her Klingon classes. And I, I, I like seeing that version of Uhura too. But I just I just laugh at this stuff where the tra- I mean it's cheap humor. But the the, the where she's saying um. Uh, what is it like? We, we are, are thy. We are condemning foods, supplies, and things. <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, it's but just, it's it, yeah. To me, it was kind of. It doesn't belong in this movie. That was the. It, it reminded me like that. Taken with the Scotty doing the. You know, or, or, is it no Scott Spock saying? I'm sure he's well into planning his escape by now, and then cutting to Kirk getting beat up. I like that, too. I I was okay with that. that To me, they're all somewhat of a piece, and like I think I got a little wary of it early on, and then every single one I was like, ugh. See, I was fine with the Spock one, but the the whole... Did the hands of the diplomats bother you, too? Which one? When he said um, it'll be in the hands of the diplomats, and then it cuts to the Klingon ambassador. Actually, I just didn't like Spock's delivery on that. It sounded too um, self-aware in a weird way. Um, I liked but, it, but this, this this sort of speaks to the if you're generally on board a movie, you're gonna like roll with those things. If you're not, you're gonna nitpick it. And so I nitpick it. What about bit. when they beam them up right before the warden says his name is, and then they beam them up? I like that just because it subverts the usual. It like oh, we're going full cliche, cliche. <laughs> yeah. oh, no, we're not pulling the rug out from under. And, and then Kirk's it's a dramatic, con- it's a dramatic contrivance. I. I, the, weirdly, that stuff doesn't bother me too much. And McCoy being like, "Hell no, I don't want to go back." <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's like I'm fine with not knowing I'm who okay did that. that. I'm just glad to be safe. But then the warden calls Kang and tells him, "Like, oh yeah, like these two escaped." Yeah. So then we get like our our big battle. They they learn from Sulu that the the peace talks are at Kittimer. And Kirk says, "Bless you, Sulu." And I don't know. I, just, I like that for whatever reason. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, they they get in the the. It's kind of like a cool submarine battle. Because uh, you know you, you it's kind of it kind of echoes Balance of Terror, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, or Meyer's own the cut down highly <laughs> super edited version of Balance of Terror, <laughs> or, or, or his own Mutara Nebula battle in Trek Two. Um, oh, but like we skipped a part where they uh, do the mind meld with Valeris. Yeah, a scene that is particularly aged poorly. Um, it doesn't bother me, but I, I get I get the impression that like uh, you know like it comes off as as I, I hate using the, the term in, in like this, but rapey. Yeah. Um, but I, I think really and truly, like, the way mind melds have frequently been used in Star Trek, you know, like, where you, you go into someone's mind to pull out information, that's kind of been done before. Um, like, I don't I don't think Spock is doing something nearly as bad as what Cybok was doing to people in the previous movie. Uh... So, 
he's like Cybox reasons were worse. He just was doing it to fulfill his own. But he's like a serial but, rapist. He's going in. He's like prying into people's minds, reaching into like their their deepest darkest secrets without their permission. Like to and and then they become like subservient to him. I think that's way worse than what what Spock did to Valeris. So uh, the, the way the way my melts have often been used for Spock to to go to our traditional comic book side reference. Uh, was how, like, in the early days of the X-Men, Professor Xavier would often do a little mind nudge to make a villain forget an identity or something like that that would help them out. It was just kind of a trope of the time. Mm. It was how they get information fast and sometimes push a plot point forward quickly or or, or escape a plot well, that's point. That's how they, they use like. it here. Right, and so, I'm, like, on that level, I somewhat excuse it. Because they make such an effort to show her discomfort, even if you don't and every, evoke... And the crew's discomfort. Right, even if you don't evoke the word rape, it's as if he kind of. It's as if he's torturing her. Yeah. But that's. I think it, it works because a mind meld actually, like a non-consensual mind meld, actually is a disturbing if you think about it. And so I, I like that they they added that that realism to it. For me, here's the was, thing: if it were the show Twenty Four, that's what Jack Bauer does. Yeah. On Star Trek, they usually even you know they sometimes yeah. like to show them push, but usually they find a better way. I, but I will, they, they've had mind yeah. melds before. This isn't the first time they, but they did that. But forced mind melds? I don't, I don't know if you could say that uh, Van Gilder could, uh, could was kind of, consent to a mind meld. Yeah, and, but he was just bonkers. But, so there was trying to help and him. And then, then um, when when is it? Is it um, when is, is it the one where like the computers are like picking people to die? When Spock like uh, mind melds with someone through a wall? Um it gets him to walk into the room. Yeah, like the, like the, that's that's uh, he stuck an idea into his head, not rummaged around in his. And the guy wasn't like, ah. Oh, no. it's, and it basically, when you just had Varys, uh, Valeris admit that, like, yeah, like I know who the conspiracy people are, but I'm not going to tell you. Yeah. And I was like, okay, well, well the, the, again, that's that's the most twenty four a show can possibly get. Yeah. Well, oh, here's no, what I feel about it. Jack Bauer tortured people all the time to get the bomb real quick. But this yeah. is why this is why torture is stupid because it's not effective. Yeah. Because when you're torturing someone, they're not compelled to tell you the truth. They're compelled to tell you whatever will make you yeah. stop hurting them. Well, They'll give you the answer that you want to hear or what they think will make you yeah. stop. A mind meld is like 100% effective. Well, in in stories where people use torture like in 24, they usually do make it effective. I will say on one hand, um, Nicholas Myers in his memoirs actually said, "Yeah, that now that we've got all this uh, this this homeland security waterboarding stuff, I kind of feel that torturing Valeris to get the information he said torture, not rape, uh, in the book um, was probably not the best way to go, and I kind of regret that scene. Um, on the other hand." Leonard Nimoy said this is what Spock would do in these circumstances if anyone knows what Spock would do. So I'm kind of like, okay, was it ethically dubious? Yes. Was it what Spock would do? Yes. So this is Spock cross, perhaps crossing the line. It's left up to the audience. Well, well, this is my take on it. Is that like, I, I think it works for the story. And I, I, I think that it's effective in the movie because it, it is disturbing. Yeah. And I, I think, uh, you know, that was the intent behind it. Yeah. Uh, however, I, I can see how if that movie was made today, it would be irresponsible because we do have these these issues with yeah. with torture, um, and, and that this this does uh, come off as as the optics on it are, are so similar than that. Yeah. Um, but in like you know fake made up Star Trek land, you know mind meld is not is not the same as like torturing someone. Yeah. It's like a, a, an effective way to get this information of someone who, who's essentially just like confessed to knowing it. Um, so. 
They made it look pretty uncomfortable. Yeah. But it was supposed to be uncomfortable. Yeah. And yeah. Was, I don't think it breaks Spock or breaks Star Trek, but I think it's okay to say Spock might have crossed the line in that scene. When, and when, <laughs> I, when I was watching it for the first time, I remember it was like at my grandparents' house. And when like uh, Valeris started like screaming like that, mm-hmm. I'd like get up and like run to the TV and like turn <laughs> it down because like I didn't want I didn't want and Mimi and super yeah, violent. I didn't, stuff. I didn't want Mimi and Papa to come in there. Like sounds like you're watching someone getting raped. What's going on? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, this, so so yes, I think that kind of admit, that's your way of admitting uh, that it might have been crossing yeah. some lines. <laughs> does, does Fox say anything before he does it? Like I wish I didn't have to do this, but we have we need to know. I almost feel well, like it's just apparent that, like, yeah. I know, but I still kind of I he has that, regret on his face after. Yeah, I I wish that there had been something like that. For, for I mean, since we fair. haven't gone there yet in the novelization, the writer actually can't handle it and rewrites the context, and so she Valeris thinks she's going to get raped. She thinks she's going to get mind raped. Spock puts his hand on her, and then he reaches out, and in his mind, he says, "Listen, we have to have this information." Is would you just tell it to me? And she decides, and, and he explain, and he kind of also projects his vision of the future. And she says, "Oh, all right, I'll just tell you." And there's no, and, and she does she have legitimate regret, or, did, or does she like feel like you really should know? I I I can't remember the exact details, but the point is, she decides to give the information. That's up. interesting. And the author just flat out refused <laughs> to go there and rewrote the scene. That's interesting, and that was at the time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, and I was like. I, I don't actually like that. I kind of feel like, you know, that might be... Most of the time I like the changes they make or the improvements or the fixes, but I actually kind of found that annoying because that's going against what Leonard Nimoy thought Spock would do. And I, I, I think I, I actually... I, I do sort of like it. I kind of like the notion of, like, somebody being confronted on a pure mental level with the mm-hmm. the truth or, like, almost having to deal with hope in a way that she hadn't mm-hmm. um, uh, or a more positive vision yeah. Uh, I, I'd like to. I'd like to read it and see how it how it plays well, out. After that, she does kind of cave, and and it's implied that like she's willing to give like a full confession yeah. after right. that. And there's um, no screaming or oh, or yeah. oh face or any but, of that stuff in the in the novel. So but then we but yeah they're, they're they're en route to Kittimer, so we get the 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 big battle, which this is where where they did choose to spend the money, and it looks so good oh, because yeah. of it. It is gorgeous and. Every shot of the Enterprise, every every shot of the Excelsior, of the Bird of Prey, um, all of it is gorgeous. A, a couple of those shots were, they, they, they actually had gotten special effects to the point where they could do real quick and dirty shots. Uh, instead of doing storyboards, they just throw up a green screen and move the model across and, and do some quick shots and then show it to the director. Is that about what you're looking at? And they ended up keeping some of the oh, wow. the the, uh, the, the um, storyboard shots that That's they crazy. showed Nicholas Myers because they thought they were good enough. You know, one of the things I think money. Myers is really good at is kind of building the dramatic tension of a battle so that, like, when Kirk uh, uh, tells Khan, uh, he's, you know, Khan wants the Genesis information... And he's like, here it comes. And yeah. it's this really underplayed thing when he's right about to bloody his nose hardcore. Yeah. Uh, so that when they kind of build to the big finale where Chang's ship is revealed, Sulu gets to say fire, Kirk gets to say fire, and you just get this fi- very satisfying payback. And it's so well edited, like, before that when you have Sulu, like, racing to get there, yeah. and those helmsmen's like, uh, like, like she'll, gonna f- she'll fly apart, and he's like, fly her apart then. Yeah. And they're like, oh, yeah, I love Captain Sulu. And he got to say a very kind of classic badass Captain The, the way that it cuts back and forth from the battle to the planet to 
um, uh, Zeddy's speech. I'm going to call her Zeddy because I, I can't say her <laughs> name or remember it. Gorkin's and then, daughter. And then yeah. when you have like the president's speech, and you're just getting like these little tidbits of it, but you're also seeing the assassin, who may or may not be uh, Colonel West, depending on what version of the movie you're watching. Um, and then it cuts like from that to like the battle to like McCoy and Spock trying to put the torpedo together to Chang being uh, intentionally like annoyed, like the movie's intending for you to be like annoyed and frustrated with this guy who's just like uh, having the time of his life quoting Shakespeare, fighting fighting the legendary Captain Kirk. Yes, he's evil Picard. Yeah, just spinning spinning around his chair, you know, <laughs> cry <laughs> havoc and let slip the dogs of war and just. He's, he's, that was like the best day of his life yeah. until <laughs> until he sees that torpedo that he's figured out is like tracking him and it's coming towards him and he's just like oh shit to be or not to be I think he's still like that he died like he wanted to live you know this yeah. he, he, he died on the battlefield he, he wanted there to be a giant war between Starfleet and the Klingon Empire and that's how he died and you get that, <laughs> that gorgeous explosion of the bird of prey that... It like has like five internal explosions yeah. and yeah. Uh, and then the head blows up on yes. the ship and it's... it looks it looks so good that the 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 big action climax of of the next movie um well I guess it's not like the the action climax because there's still some stuff that happens on the planet but yeah. the, the the next movie reaches that exact same shot yes which is always but I noticed that the first time I saw Star Trek Generations and yeah. it's always bothered me yeah. especially if you're I, watching I did not these know it until you told me a few uh, weeks ago yeah. um, now, in the original script, um, it's supposed to be the Excelsior that comes up with the magic torpedo that can track him down, uh, track down and hit right. Chang. And that's why they set up that the Excelsior has all these special tools for hunting gaseous anomalies in the opening scene with Excelsior. And then suddenly that equipment is on board the Enterprise. Makes more sense. Uh, apparently, Kirk Shatner said, no, my ship needs yeah. to be the big hero. S- supposedly, he didn't want anyone to come to the rescue of Kirk. So, do you have a preference on which version would have been better if you were in charge and could tell Kirk to sh- or Shatner to shove it? Because you know, because Kirk gets such so many big moments. I think that I could have allowed for that one to be Excelsior's big moment. Yeah, Kirk still gets to go but down and save I, the president. I still think Sulu and Excelsior get a lot to do, and, and, and they beam down there too. They arrest Admiral Cartwright. Yeah, well, that might be to make up with the fact we that get, they didn't get the torpedo. We get like that cool. <laughs> we get that, that when Shatner makes that incredible long jump to like save the president. Which felt like, uh, you know, I always, I always call this movie as like the political thriller of the yeah. Star Trek movies. And, and when you dive and like stop an assassination, that's very like classic political thriller. Yes. Yeah. Behold my stunt double! <laughs> <laughs> and then that, that final, uh, log entry where they're, they're ordered to return to space dock and, and Spock says, uh, you know, I, I, I believe my response would be go to hell if I was human. And I love like like Kirk just like gets establishing like yeah this is this is our final mission like like we're done but the Enterprise will live on and that's telling the audience that Star Trek will live on and then yeah what what we mentioned earlier Dave with the um, when he says instead of we're no we're no man has gone before he corrects it to we're no one had gone before which if that movie came out today, people would be outraged about that. Stupid SJW Star Trek. Yeah. yeah. Now they can only vent that on Discovery and not on a movie per se. Uh, but I guess uh, the Abrams movies had lots of TNA and more traditional fan servicey <laughs> elements, so they weren't too freaked out about those either. Uh, um, but yeah, it's a good handoff. I believe at the time I was mildly annoyed at it uh, because it, well, we've established before that uh, college age Dave wasn't as enlightened as modern Dave. Yeah, yep. Yeah, I think I thought I was like oh, it's too politically correct. But just as Star Trek has like grown over the years, we've sure. all grown over the years, and Fair just enough. like. Just like Star Trek is a very human 
story. It's it has its flaws, and just as as we're we're a very human audience, and we have our flaws, but well, we can grow past. I didn't them. expect you were going to say something so deep at the end, Fathery. Yeah. <laughs> That's it's a deep movie, and I, I cry uh, at the end watching this. It, it, uh, I, I, from I, that I, from that line, or or from or is it another just, scene? Just from that that. The whole ending sequence, the sense general. of continuity, yeah, and, uh, that, and that this uh, yeah. this vision and will just continue. having like like a good farewell for the original series crew because I, I I love TOS. It's my second favorite Star Trek, and I I love that it got like a a, a pretty satisfying ending for me, anyways. And um, oh. I, I wish that the the TNG crew had gotten as good of a finale for for their adventures, but uh, we got a TNG guy coming back later this year, so um, maybe maybe Picard will at least get his big send off. It could be, and we'll see who else ends up showing up on there. And, and part of my frustration with Star Trek Generations is that I do feel like they kind of botched the uh, Kirk death that we'll get to next week, spoilers, um, and it kind of undercuts the ending of this movie a little bit, but we will be talking about that next week. Uh, so we're about to start talking about the TNG era movies. We have um, uh, Generations coming up in a week, and that'll be followed by First Contact, so if you have any questions or thoughts on those movies be sure to uh, let us know uh, but we are going to have to go ahead and uh, sign off now we'll be back sunday with star trek generation so until next time live, live long, long and prosper y'all thank all of you so much for checking out this installment of text trek i hope you enjoyed it uh, please be sure to like our youtube videos and subscribe to our channel uh, Audio-only version of episodes are available at our website, www.text-trek.com. Uh, please check out our site, especially if you just want an audio-only podcast. Uh, we have that available for you. Y'all can also keep up with us online. You can follow us on Twitter, at TXTrek, or you can uh, check us out on Facebook at www dot facebook.com slash text dash trek uh, please by all means let us know what you think by dropping a comment anywhere you see fit uh, we definitely want to hear your feedback let us know what you liked and what you would like to see more of what you would like to see differently going forward if you want to email me directly uh, go ahead i can be reached at fatheryactual at text dash trek dot com thank all y'all again take care